Hi everyone, before we start today's episode, I have an update for you. Our last two episodes were about the inclusion of women in Nigeria's economic and political spaces, and I am cautiously excited to report that the House of Representatives has passed a bill that would set aside seats for women. According to Premium Times, there would be an additional Senate seat in each state and the federal capital territory that would be reserved for women, as well as two additional seats in the House of Representatives just for women. So thank you to the House of Reps, and we are looking forward to confirmation from the Senate. And of course, we will follow this closely and bring you updates. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Last week, on Tuesday, the 27th of April, 2021, President Muhammad Buhari did something that some people have been asking him to do for a while. Our president asked for help. And it was during a virtual meeting with the newly appointed U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. And considering the growing security challenges in Western Central Africa, the Gulf of Guinea, Lake Chad region and the Sahel weighing heavily on Africa underscores the need for the United States to consider relocating AFRICOM headquarters for Stuttgart in Germany to Africa and near the theater of operation. During the meeting, the President asked for the United States to consider relocating AFRICOM that's the United States African Command headquarters from Stuttgart, Germany to Africa. For a president to ask for help at this time and from outsiders may mean that our country is really in trouble. It may mean that we've done just about everything we can do on our own. There are still a few things the president can do before we truly run out of options. And in this episode, Antonietta, Richard, and Nabila are going to help us look back at what has already been done to address our nation's most recent internal security problems. We'll also talk about what relocating Africa might mean for both the U.S. and Africa. And then we ask, what else can the president do? What options does he have left? From Triple E Media, I'm Ramat Mohammed, and this is The Backstory. A lot of people have said that the president should declare a state of emergency on security. Um, so I agree with what Mr. President said, and uh, I also encourage uh, the president to place this as his major priority or even go to the extent of declaring a state of emergency in the security sector to deal with the security because without peace, you can't make any progress. Nothing will make sense. And we call on President Buhari to declare a national state of emergency on security. People are dying. You don't even know their numbers. 
Why must we continue to lose our people on the streets? Considering the security situation, the president should immediately declare a state of emergency in the security sector so as to fast track all measures to ensure that the restoration to ensure the restoration of peace in our country. The federal government should ensure the protection of national infrastructure and assets, particularly the Shiroro and Kaindi dams in Niger State. We've actually had state of emergencies before, several times in fact. The most recent was in May 2013. A state of emergency was declared in three states in the Northeast, Borno, Adamawa, and Yobe. That particular state of emergency was in place for 18 months between May 2013 to November 2014. When we looked at the data set from the Council on Foreign Relations, we saw that there was actually a decrease in violent deaths in the Northeast for the first six months after the state of emergency was declared. But then the number of violent deaths tripled in the first quarter of 2014. And in fact, it was in April 2014 right in the middle of the state of emergency that the Chibo girls' abduction happened. And according to the BBC, it was also during that same state of emergency that Boko Haram planted a flag in the town of Goza, Bronu State, in August 2014. So it would appear, based on the increasing number of deaths and other major events at that time, that the state of emergency imposed on the Northeast back in 2013 didn't really seem to have a long-term effect. So, mercenaries were called in. One of the evolutions we've also seen in the last six weeks or begun to learn more about is the arrival in Nigeria of uh, quite substantial numbers of foreign military experts. And they're quite a, a mixed bunch. There are um, Ukrainian... Articles published in March 2015 from various sources like This Day and Reuters all states that the president at the time, Goodluck Jonathan, requested the assistance of mercenaries, paid soldiers from South Africa and the former Soviet Union. At that point, violent deaths across the country had reached over 4,300 in the first quarter of 2015 alone. And nearly all of the deaths, 97% were in the Northeast. Now, according to the Institute for Security Studies, the mercenaries were asked to leave towards the end of April 2015. A month later, in May 2015, President Buhari was inaugurated to replace Jonathan. President Muhammad Buhari came into office promising to deal with the security situation in the country. Progress has been made in recent weeks by our security process, but victory cannot be achieved by appeasing the command and control center in Abuja. The command center will be relocated to Maiduguri and remain until Boko Haram is completely subdued. And that's the first thing he did. The theater of war, the military headquarters, was moved from Abuja to Maiduguri, the capital of Borno State. In addition to the move, the military got reinforcement. 11,000 troops of the Multinational Joint Tax Force, that is the MNJTF, were deployed to the northeast border. 
The task force is a joint effort between the governments of Nigeria, Cameroon, Niger, Benin Republic, and Chad, and they focused on combating terrorism in and around the Lake Chad basin. The other thing that really helped is that Nigeria started to get weapons shipments again. Remember that in 2014, Jonathan had written several letters to several countries, including the US, asking for weapons to fight the war in the Northeast. But each country he asked turned him down. But by 2015, that had changed. We reviewed the arms import data tracked by the United Nations Register of Conventional Arms. In 2014, we received only nine major conventional arms like armored combat vehicles and over 4,000 small arms. Most of these weapons came from Bulgaria. But by 2015, Nigeria imported over 160 major conventional arms, including artillery systems and over 8,000 small arms and light weapons, mostly from Eastern European countries. In addition to troops and arms, the fishing ban of 2014 was still in effect. It turns out members of Boko Haram had infiltrated the fishing community and were using fishing to fund weapons purchases and launch surprise attacks. So by the time you add all of this up, the results were not surprising. Violent deaths in the north, which still accounted for most of the deaths in the country, dropped almost exponentially from over 4,000 in the first quarter of 2015 to under 1,000 in the second quarter of 2016. And the number of violent deaths remained steady throughout 2016 and 2017. Then in the second quarter of 2018, violent deaths in the North nearly doubled to about 2,000. But this time, the problem wasn't in the Northeast. It was in the North Central. According to the papers and the Council on Foreign Relations dataset, over 850 people died in farmer herder clashes across the North Central between April and June of 2018. But even if you don't count the flash events like what happened in 2018 in the North Central, the rest of the North started to report slow but steady increases in violent deaths starting the first quarter of 2018. By the first quarter of 2019, violent deaths in the North had doubled and reached over 2,200. But this time, in 2019, the increase was not due to events in the Northeast or the North Central. This time, it was the Northwest. In the first quarter of 2019, the Northwest reported over 1,000 violent deaths. Zamfara and Kaduna bore the brunt of those killings. In Zamfara, the newspapers associated most of those killings with banditry. The newspapers don't say which type of banditry, but we suspect it's gold banditry. And in April 2019, that's going into the second quarter, the federal government banned all gold mining activities in Zamfara. And that actually seemed to help. By the end of 2019, the violent deaths in the north had gone back down from about 2,200 per quarter to about 1,000 per quarter. But that didn't last for too long. In the first quarter of 2020, violent deaths in the north were again starting to reach 2,000 per quarter. And by the second quarter of 2020, they were above 2,500 per quarter. And this time, both the Northeast and the Northwest bore the bronze. Nearly 800 people died in the Northwest, mostly Kaduna, Zamfara, Katsina, and over 900 people died in the Northeast, mostly in Bronu. After the first quarter of 2020, 
Nigeria, like the rest of the world, entered lockdown. And by the fourth quarter of 2020, now even the southern parts of the country started to report more violent deaths. Before then, the South had been reporting an average of about 200 violent deaths per quarter since 2015, but by the end of 2020, that number doubled to over 400 violent deaths per quarter. This increase was mostly related to the NSAS protests, and the repercussions of that have continued into the first quarter of 2021. So the country's security situation is a lot more complex now than it was in 2015. At that time, we could hire mercenaries, engage our neighbors in joint operations, get more arms, and focus all of that on a known target. And that target was in a known place, the Northeast. But now, the target appears to have replicated, morphed, and spread, much like a virus. The security situation has become what experts are calling asymmetric warfare. And Nigeria is not equipped to fight asymmetric war because asymmetric war relies on information. Reliable and timely information gained through intelligence gathering. And using tools that we don't have. Perhaps that's why the president made the call to ask for help. AFRICOM is short for the U.S. Africa Command. The U.S. has these military command centers all over the world. On the 1st of October 2008, the United States Africa Command became the sixth geographic command in the Department of Defense's unified command structure. And their stated purpose is to provide contingency planning, operations, and security cooperation in various regions. For example, there is the U.S. Southcom, which provides military services to Central and South America, as well as the Caribbean. And the headquarters is based in Florida. There's also U.S. CENTCOM, the United States Central Command, which is responsible for the Middle East, including Egypt and Central Asia and parts of South Asia. The headquarters for U.S. CENTCOM is also in Florida. And then the U.S. PACOM. United States Indo-Pacific Command, and it is responsible for the areas from the west coast of the United States to the west coast of India, and from the Arctic in the north to the Antarctic in the south. The headquarters for USPACOM is located in Hawaii. And then there is the USEUCOM, that is the United States European Commands, which is responsible for 51 countries and territories in Europe, Russia, Greenland, and Israel. The headquarters of this command is in Germany. And finally, the U.S. NORTHCOM, which is the United States Northern Command, and is responsible for all of North America, including Canada and Mexico. The headquarters for U.S. NORTHCOM is in Colorado. AFRICOM has a strategy document that's available on their website, africom.mil. And in that document, the U.S. is clear that instability on our continent is a threat to U.S. access and influence on the continent. And the U.S. is competing with Russia and China for increased influence and access. According to the strategy document, AFRICOM was set up to counter what they call violent extremist organizations and transnational criminal organizations in order to ensure a stable Africa. But the U.S. is careful not to involve any of their own ground troops in security operations as part of AFRICOM. Instead, AFRICOM's strategy is to ensure that security operations in Africa are executed by African security forces. According to their document, AFRICOM works with partners which are mostly undisclosed and through cooperative relationships with Africans. And remember, all of this is being done from a headquarter in Germany. 
Previous U.S. administrations have considered relocating AFRICOM on a number of occasions. The Obama administration considered moving it to Spain. The Trump administration was thinking about moving it to Spain or other European allies like Italy, Belgium or Britain. In the early days, they even thought about hosting AFRICOM headquarters in Africa. But it didn't happen for various reasons. First and foremost, there were concerns about security. Putting AFRICOM on the continent would clearly make it a target for terrorist groups. And then there is the financial cost of moving it, and that could run up to billions of dollars. Which makes President Buhari's request a very interesting one for the U.S. to consider. And the same day that Buhari made the request, the British Minister for Africa said that no partnerships can solve Nigeria's problems. And there is a real risk that if AFRICOM is headquartered in Africa, the U.S. entity will become another political chess piece for African politicians. We've already seen in the past couple of months more and more involvement from U.S. individuals and U.S. entities in Nigerian affairs. For example, during the NSAS protest, CNN got into a fight with the Nigerian government about specific coverage involving the number of deaths during the protest, and eventually CNN did have to retract their reports. And then political figures like Hillary Clinton, media mogul Jack Dorsey, and major entertainment stars like Rihanna all pitched in their two cobos. And then there's another risk that an AFRICOM headquarters based in Africa now sets up a race between the US, China, and Russia to establish military command centers throughout Africa. And knowing our leaders, they will use this competition to get money. Maybe they sell command centers to the highest bidder or they take money in order to exclude a competitor from their country. And of course, we can't forget that an AFRICOM headquarters in Nigeria or other African countries would be a major risk to American military lives given the threat from insurgent groups which are somehow able to get high-grade military weapons. So with all of this in mind, it's not entirely clear why our president specifically asked for AFRICOM to be relocated to Africa. But if the request is denied, the president has other options for dealing with the rising insecurity across the country. Go to the extent of declaring a state of emergency in the security sector. And we call on President Buhari to declare a national state of emergency on security. People are dying. You don't the even... president should immediately declare a state of emergency in the security sector so as to fast Despite the fact that a state of emergency was not a long-term solution in the Northeast, people are still calling for the president to declare a state of emergency on the security situation in the country. But all these people who are calling for a state of emergency don't really explain what it means. Sections 34, 45 and 305 of our constitution all mention emergency. But section 305 is the section that authorizes the president to declare a state of emergency. The constitution of the Federal Republic of Nigeria in section 305 clearly elaborates the power of the president to declare an emergency, especially a state of emergency. The president under 305 has the power to declare a state of emergency in the country or any part of the country. So it can be for the whole federation or part of it. When we spoke to a constitutional expert, he mentioned that there is a process to declare a state of emergency. 
the declaration has to be recorded in what is called an official gazette. An official gazette is a publication of government, official publication of government. And there are procedures for that. After publication, the National Assembly must ratify the declaration. When the president declares a state of emergency, the expectation is that if parliament is sitting, if the National Assembly is sitting at the time of the declaration, then the National Assembly has to ratify the decision of the president within two days of the proclamation. If the National Assembly was not sitting at that time when the president declared the state of emergency, for instance, uh, the National Assembly was in recess, maybe the House of Representatives or the Senate, then the declaration of the state of emergency is expected to be ratified within 10 days after the proclamation by the president. And the usual procedure is that the uh, copies of the Gazette, sorry, copies of the proclamation and the Gazette will be transmitted to the president of the Senate or the speaker, as the case may be, so that they can initiate the process of ratification. And according to Premium Times, in the history of our country, we've had three states of emergencies which were declared over parts of our country, never the whole country. The first one was on the anniversary of our independence, October 1st, 1962, by the then Prime Minister, Sir Abubakar Tafa Balewa, in the Western region. The second one was in May 2004 by President Olusegun Obasanjo in Plateau State. And the third we already mentioned was in May 2013 by President Goodluck Jonathan in Borno, Adamawa and Yobe states. So declaring the state of emergency is actually not new for us. But there are specific circumstances that warrant a state of emergency. A president can't just wake up one day and decide to declare a state of emergency, you know? What is important to know is that there are circumstances that would warrant the declaration of emergency. And I think it's important for people to have an idea of those circumstances. Yes, one is when the Federation is at war, the country is at war with external enemies, the president can have the power to do so. Uh, if there's any imminent danger of invasion, it's also possible. Where there is also actual breakdown of public order or safety, and I think the prevailing situation is the fourth one where there is clear and present danger of actual breakdown of public order and safety in the Federation or any part of it, requiring extraordinary measures to avert such danger. So you see, this is uh, a recurrent problem now in the country and across, and the president is within his competence if he so wishes at any time to declare a state of emergency under this particular ambit of the law. Nigerians are used to having curfews during local violent clashes. We've seen this happen in Imo State recently. We've also had curfews during this COVID-19 lockdown. But curfews are different from state of emergencies. Uh, declaring a curfew may have nothing to do with a state of emergency because uh, the state of emergency flows from the constitutional provision. Uh, a curfew is simply an internal security measure which a government can impose just to be able to control certain happenings within the state. So I'm not sure the two can always be equated. 
a state of emergency can entail a range of possible actions. Well, you see, the conceptual approach is that once that is done, certain functions of governance within the state will cease to operate. For instance, uh, the local House of Assembly in the state, all legislative functions and so on will now be subordinated to the authority of the president, commander-in-chief. And that requires uh, extraordinary measures of governance, including the deployment of military or security personnel, the administration of the territory directly by the president, and so on and so forth. So wide-ranging powers will now be conferred on the president to ensure that normalcy returns probably within the period of the declaration of state of emergency. So this is the usual expectation. Of course, there might be other considerations beyond that, but these are the general uh, issues that would affect any declaration of state of emergency. In May 2004, President Obasanjo suspended Governor Joshua Darié and the whole House of Assembly for six months. The Constitution is very clear on the duration. The Constitution allows up to a period of six months, but it can be revalidated by the National Assembly as circumstances dictate. Obasanjo appointed a sole administrator for the state, that is, Plateau. After six months, when the situation in the state calmed down, the governor and the House of Assembly were reinstated. The state of emergency is an option, but it's also an option of last resort. A state of emergency is for when the government does not have any other option. And we do seem to be running out of options. Hi, everyone. Over the weekend, the military announced that they changed the name of the operation in the Northeast from Lafayette to Hutton Kai. And that new name may actually be a clue to how the military plans to defeat Boko Haram, Zasa Hatakansu, by putting their heads together. With this new name, our security forces are signaling that they are going to work together as an integrated network rather than individual siloed units. Now, since 2018, the military has known that the war in the Northeast has shifted from conventional to asymmetric. The traditional military structure of having a command at the top with subordinates that wait for orders, that works in a conventional war where the targets and their locations are known. But when the war environment shifts, when it becomes more complex, conventional tactics no longer work. And that's what the Americans found out back in 2004 in Iraq. General Stanley McChrystal, who led the Joint Special Operations Task Force in Iraq, quickly realized that the American forces, the best in the world, the best trained, the best equipped, were being caught off guard by the insurgent forces because the insurgent forces were operating as a network. They didn't have a central command and control structure. So they were a lot more resilient. And if they were attacked, they could regroup faster and they were more adaptable. And so what General McChrystal did is he copied the way the insurgents work. 
He built a network, a team of teams, which by the way, happens to be the name of his book. And the key to this network approach was that it empowered each and every single member of the team to act decisively without waiting for central command. Now, in order for this to happen, team members had to develop a shared conscious, a shared purpose. They had to put their heads together. So when I heard the name of the new operation in the Northeast, Hutton Kai, it gives me hope. And it also sheds some light into what type of support the president is hoping to get when he asked the U.S. to relocate AFRICOM to Africa. Now, there have been some news reports which suggest that if AFRICOM relocates, then American soldiers will be fighting our war. That's definitely not going to happen. I can tell you that right now. But I do think asking for help from the U.S. was the right thing to do at this time for a few reasons. First, Nigeria's military is in the process of reorganization and having an outside objective assessment of that reorganization would be a good thing, especially because we're reorganizing to fight insurgency, something that Americans have had at least two decades of experience doing. Now, insurgency in our environment won't be exactly the same as insurgency in the Middle East, but I would assume that 80% of the Americans' experience probably still applies here. The other reason why I'm happy that our president asked for help is because it buys him some time before he has to take the next action. There are a lot of calls for the president to declare a state of emergency, but it's unclear what specific and meaningful actions are to be taken under the state of emergency. What actions are meaningful when fighting an insurgency? Now, I believe that the assembly or a committee is going to be meeting in the next week or two to clearly outline what they want the president to do under the state of emergency. And we will patiently wait for their recommendations. And of course, we'll provide you an update. The Backstory is brought to you by Triple E Media Productions, production copyright 2021, Triple E Media Productions. If you enjoyed this episode of The Backstory and want to hear more, subscribe to our 234 Audio YouTube channel. Episodes of this podcast can also be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Backstory was produced by... Richard Anyabe, Antonieta Kalunta, Nabila Usman, Dominic Tabakaji, and Sam Tabakaji. Executive producer Ramatz Mohammed. Special thanks to Alexandra Gekpe, John Iwodi, Rabia Hadeja, Stanley Bentu, Aredi Isha, and Mala Iwa Bado Ikaleku. I'm Ramat Mohammed. See you next week.